Ever since Justice Harry Blackmun issued the famous ruling in 1973, the issues to come out of Roe have changed, sometimes drastically. I got in touch with law professor Mary Ziegler to get the story of the case, from a fateful trip Justice Blackman took to the Mayo Clinic to the woman known as Jane Roe. I started by asking Mary to set the stage for the landmark ruling in Roe v. Wade by looking back to another important case in 1965, Griswold v. Connecticut. Griswold was um, about a, a law that was unique at the time. It was a Connecticut law that prohibited married couples from using contraception, not from purchasing it, but from actually using it. And uh, the Supreme Court struck down that law and more controversially based that ruling on a right to privacy. And that right to privacy wasn't spelled out in the text of the Constitution or its history, but uh, Justice William Douglas reasoned that if you looked at what he called the penumbras of the Constitution, sort of implications from what was spelled out in the Constitution, that there would have to be a right to privacy broad enough to cover married couples' access to contraception. And so that right to privacy would ultimately come to be the basis for the abortion right in Roe v. Wade. Wow, which I bet is something that most people don't know at all, right? That mm-hmm. the the had to do with the right to privacy and not so much initially with abortion. Right. Well, I, I mean, I think that there was there were already questions at the time of Griswold about just how broad this right of privacy would be. Was this really about mm-hmm. marriage, which had been pretty central to the court's opinion in Griswold, or was it more about the privacy that applied to contraceptive decisions for anybody, married or unmarried? And if it did apply to contraceptive decisions, there was an open question about whether that would extend to abortion or whether the court would see abortion as being a totally unrelated issue to contraception. So then Griswold is about contraception. It's not about abortion. Let's focus a little bit more in then on Roe v. Wade and and tell us a little bit about Norma McCorvey and Sarah Weddington. So uh, Norma McCorvey at the time in 1969 was 21. Um, She already had two children. She learned she was pregnant again. Um, and her friends advised her to claim that she had been raped. They thought that uh, Texas would allow for abortion in cases of rape or incest. Um, this wasn't actually true. Uh, Texas allowed only for abortions in cases in which a woman's life would be at risk. Uh, she tried to get an illegal abortion, but found that the facility that she was looking for had actually been shut down by the police and eventually found her way to um, two attorneys, Linda Coffey, uh, and Sarah Weddington. Weddington at that point had had an abortion herself um, in a Mexican clinic when she was 22. And so I think she understood the stakes of this in a way that others didn't. And Weddington and Coffee actually filed a lawsuit on McCorvey's behalf uh, the, using the alias Jane Roe, um, seeking a declaration that um, Texas's abortion law uh, was unconstitutional. And that was how the case Roe v. Wade got started. Hmm. So, so it starts out in Texas, and then how does it work its way up to the Supreme Court? In 1970, there was actually a three-judge panel of the district court in Texas, which is fairly unusual, and that court declared the law unconstitutional. The Supreme Court uh, decided to hear the case, and actually the, the process in the Supreme Court was kind of a long and complicated one. Um, Justice Blackmun had initially wanted to write the opinion differently, and the court had had 
row in front of it since 1971 and then didn't actually wind up dis- issuing a final opinion until January of 1973. Oh, that's interesting. So then in the end, how would you sum up the main arguments being presented by the plaintiffs and the defendants in the case as a whole? Well, uh, Weddington and her colleagues made a, a variety of arguments. We'll hear arguments in number 18, uh, Roe against uh, Wade. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. They obviously used the privacy argument that had been uh, made in Griswold, and then I think more forcefully in a case the year before Roe came down called Eisenstadt versus Baird. Um, Eisenstadt mm. involved a Massachusetts law that allowed married couples to use contraception either to prevent STDs or to prevent contraception, but allowed single people only to use contraception for the purposes of preventing STDs. So the court struck that law down um, and in, in passing said that if the right to privacy means anything, it means the right of an individual to control when and whether uh, he or she bears or begets a child. I'm paraphrasing. So uh, Weddington and other sort of abortion rights amici relied on that right to privacy and said that it should be broad enough to extend to abortion rights. They made a variety of other arguments, too. Um, for example, they pointed to the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery and described hmm. uh, forced pregnancy as a form of involuntary servitude. Uh, wow. They gestured to the idea of equality for women. So a pregnancy to a woman is perhaps one of the most determinative aspects of her life. It disrupts her body, it disrupts her education, it disrupts her employment, and it often disrupts her entire family life. And we feel that because of the impact on the woman, this certainly, in as far as there are any rights which are fundamental, is a matter which is of such fundamental and basic concern to the woman involved that she should be allowed to make the choice as to whether to continue or to terminate her pregnancy. The state of Texas and anti-abortion amici uh, made a variety of arguments too. Probably the most significant ones were first that a fetus or unborn child was a person within the meaning of the 14th Amendment. And what that would mean would be that that fetus or unborn child would be entitled to both due, prote- due process of the law and equal protection of the law, um, which would make an abortion right impossible. Texas also argued that it had a compelling interest in protecting life from the moment of fertilization. Now, the appellee does not disagree with the appellant's statement that a woman has a choice. But as we have previously mentioned, we feel that this choice is left up, is it, it's the woman's, prior to the time that she becomes pregnant. This is the time of the choice. And now, a lot of anti-abortion groups relied pretty heavily on, on what they saw as sort of scientific evidence. So fetology as a medical specialty was relatively new back then. So there was a lot of argument to the effect that if you understood what a fetus or unborn child was scientifically, you would have to grant fetal rights. So then what was the final opinion? How did the Supreme Court sift through that? And how did they come up with their final opinion? And what did they base it on? Well, yeah, initially, Blackman had wanted to hold that Texas's law was just unconstitutionally vague, 
which would have been a pretty narrow opinion. Essentially, he wanted to say that it wasn't clear ahead of time when a procedure would be needed to save a woman's life and that that didn't give doctors enough notice. But a lot of his liberal colleagues weren't satisfied with that. And so over the summer, when the court was in recess, he went to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota and then developed a very different opinion, which is the Roe opinion that we have now. And the fact that Blackman was at the Mayo Clinic is, is pretty evident in the opinion. There's a lot of discussion of the medical history of abortion and even the kind of rule of law that comes out of Roe is a very medical one. So in the first hmm. trimester, the court held uh, that uh, abortion regulations were broadly unconstitutional, that the state didn't have much authority to regulate at all, that in the second trimester, the state could regulate only to protect women's health and only after fetal viability, which was the point the court defined as uh, when a, a child could survive outside of the womb independently. The court, in reaching this conclusion, relied on the right to privacy and on precedents like Griswold, but framed them very much in medical terms, said, you know, that the abortion mm. decision is something that a woman will make in consultation with her doctor. This was not strongly feminist language about a woman's right to choose, which is basically doesn't appear anywhere in the Roe opinion. Um, mm. The court also rejected the key kind of anti-abortion arguments. So when it came to personhood, the court said that the word person in the Constitution seems to apply only to people after birth. So uh, it wouldn't have been intended by the framers to include life in utero. When it came to a compelling interest in protecting life, the court said that religious authorities and doctors and philosophers all have adopted different understandings of when life begins. So the Supreme Court would be in no position to impose one of those definitions on everyone else. Wow. So, so that's fascinating that they had no idea about the visit to the Mayo Clinic and the, the sort of way in which medicine worked its way through this decision to such an extreme degree. Do you think that's part of what explains the relative harmony around the ruling? I mean, I, I gather that there were only two justices that dissented. Yeah, I think at the time, um, many of the justices thought that this was a fairly moderate decision and in, in really thought, I think, that abortion was a medical matter and that it should be mm. left to doctors. I, I think Blackman, for example, in his files had clipped a poll saying that, you know, over 70 percent of Americans thought that abortion should be a decision between a woman and her doctor. I, I really don't think that the justices anticipated there being anything like the backlash that and the controversy mm. that really ensued after the decision. So how does that controversy begin to build and what impact does that begin to gradually have on Roe v. Wade? Well, I think probably the most important thing to note here was that Roe v. Wade came in the middle of a controversy. It didn't really start mm. a controversy. So by the time you got to 19, the early 1970s, you had a very organized anti-abortion movement. It wasn't particularly a nationally organized movement, but there were a lot of very effective state organizations that were quite powerful. So just to give a, a particularly striking example, New York was um, one of very few states before Roe that had repealed all of its abortion restrictions. But anti-abortion mm. forces in New York were so well organized that they managed to convince the legislature to repeal its repeal and to reinstate abortion restrictions. And the only mm. thing that prevented that from happening was when Republican Governor Nelson Rockefeller vetoed the bill. So 
both sides were already taking pretty sharply polarized positions on abortion before Roe. So when the Supreme Court mm. intervened, it wasn't surprising that there was a lot of controversy. Roe did mm. change things because it gave the national anti-abortion movement um, kind of a push to organize and also gave the national anti-abortion movement a singular goal, right? Before, the, a lot of anti-abortion groups had just been fighting on a state-by-state -state level and didn't have a single target, if you will. Um, and after Roe, they did. So then how does the, the gradual chipping away at Roe begin? I mean, I gather that, as always, this is a federalism issue. So that really begins on a state level? It does. Well, actually, at the beginning, the chipping away was almost sort of uh, like a side job for anti-abortion activists. So <laughs> they initially wanted to amend the Constitution to criminalize all abortions. After a while, it became pretty clear, though, that these laws, the, the constitutional amendments weren't going very quickly. And so these groups instead, um, or in addition, began introducing these sort of incremental laws. And at first, these laws were uh, mostly designed to kind of keep down the abortion rates and limit access to abortion while the constitutional amendment battle continued. But over time, after Ronald Reagan was elected and abortion opponents seemed to have control of both houses of Congress, the anti-abortion movement itself was too divided about what strategy to pursue to get an amendment, so nothing actually mm. happened. And abortion opponents need to come up with another goal, right? If the whole movement had been organized around this constitutional amendment, um, there was a question of what could be done when the constitutional amendment was off the table. And leading anti-abortion groups proposed that the movement should focus on controlling nominations to the Supreme Court and ensuring that Roe was overturned. Mm. And once that happened, these incremental laws took on much more importance because they were no longer just a way to kind of keep the abortion rate down. They were a part of a, a strategy to overturn Roe. So then in, in 1992, Roe is directly challenged in the case of Planned Parenthood v. Casey. So what happens there? Well, so uh, between 1986 and 1992, many expected the court to overturn Roe. Because the mm -hmm. Republicans who had, you know, campaigned on the idea of overturning Roe had nominated more than five justices to the U.S. Supreme Court. So um, when Casey came around, many commentators expected the court to overturn Roe. And in fact, uh, the pro-choice movement's entire strategy at the time was predicated on um, <laughs> the idea that Roe would be overturned and that they would capitalize on it at the polls, essentially electing hmm. a pro-choice president and a pro-choice Congress and maybe passing federal legislation wow. to protect abortion rights. Casey, of course, defied expectations and many uh, Republican nominees, including Anthony Kennedy, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor and David Souter, all voted to preserve what the court called the essential holding of Roe, um, namely that there was a constitutional abortion right. But Casey overhauled abortion jurisprudence in other ways. So Casey in particular dropped a lot of the language of, about doctors. Um, it's very much Casey mm. an opinion about women's autonomy. There is much more explicit language in, in Casey about equality for women as well as privacy and autonomy. And Casey also adopted a, an, a, a rule of law that was much less protective of abortion arguably than the trimester framework from Roe, called the undue burden test. So 
uh, under this test, the state can't have the purpose or effect of placing a substantial obstacle in the path of a woman seeking abortion. And that was pretty vague at the time, but what people noticed was that the court applied this rule to a Pennsylvania statute that was at bar and upheld all but one part of it. <laughs> so it seemed that m many or maybe even most abortion restrictions wouldn't be unduly burdensome. At least that was the thought mm. right after uh, Casey came down. So, so it's interesting because what you're describing is a sort of balancing act between medical provisions, rights talk, legal strategy, you know, I mean, in a sense, the same sorts of things, I suppose, that have been juggled forever, but their balance shifts over time. Is, is that, in a sense, what we're looking mm -hmm. at here? The Casey court saw the abortion issue as really being about women's equality and autonomy on the one hand and the state's interest in fetal life on the other hand. The reason that Casey gave for undoing the trimester framework was that uh, if the state had an interest in fetal life, Casey thought it applied throughout pregnancy, not just after viability. So mm. in Roe, I think you see the court pitching this much more as being about medicine and something that in large part courts and legislators and politicians should stay out of. By the time you get to Casey, the court is saying this is very much a kind of profound constitutional and moral issue where there are important values on each side, like women's equality and autonomy and the government's interest in life. Hmm. When we talk now about whether the court is going to overturn Roe, we're, we're not really talking about 1973 Roe, which no longer exists. We're talking about Roe as it's been changed and transformed over time by Casey and other opinions. And, and along those lines, then, obviously, one of the reasons we're having this conversation right now is because we're looking at so many actions going on now on a state level um, in which states are passing laws that are deliberately and directly in violation of Roe v. Wade. Obviously, a lot of people are looking at that and thinking it's only a matter of time until that decision is overturned. So I wonder, given your knowledge of the background of this, what do you think the future holds for Roe specifically and for abortion rights more generally? Well, it's it's hard to say. I think um, people who are predicting the demise of Roe have good re and I mean, I include myself in that, I think have good reason for making that prediction, in part because they're relying on the fact that the Federalist Society, which is the, the, the conservative group that helps select judicial nominees for Republican presidents, has done so with the goal of overturning Roe. Now, that was true, of course, in the 80s when Justice Kennedy and O'Connor were picked as well, and it didn't work. But if I had to put my money on it, I would put my money on the Federalist Society getting it right. Um, I think the only reason there's uncertainty is because this is such a political matter, you can have justices who both as a matter of kind of ideological priors and jurisprudential philosophy don't think Roe was rightly decided, who are reluctant to actually be the deciding vote to undo the decision right? Um, because right. of concerns about what that'll mean for the court's reputation or the political controversy surrounding the court. If there is going to be a decision overturning Roe, if you look at the history, you would think that it would be much more likely to be the kind of incremental strategy that will deliver that and not the mm. sort of more flashy stringent bills we've seen in the news lately banning abortion, for example, at six weeks or at fertilization. Now, we've been talking on a, on a high level here, but I actually also am curious about one additional fact. 
What in the end happens with Norma McCorvey after the ruling? Well, Norma McCorvey, uh, interestingly, sort of undergoes almost a conversion experience. Roe, I think, in some ways ends up not really being um, that important in the, it, from the standpoint of her pregnancy. Um, she wasn't actually pregnant anymore. She wound up giving birth to that child. She had been in a lesbian relationship for some time, but then in the 1990s underwent a conversion to Christianity, began expressing remorse for her part in Roe v. Wade, um, and began working in the pro-life movement, particularly with the group Operation Rescue, ah. which led clinic blockades in the 1990s. And she became a kind of fairly prominent um, member of the anti-abortion movement. Um, mm. She actually sought in the mid-2000s to file a case to overturn Roe v. Wade um, on the basis that there was uh, evidence that the procedure hurt women. Um, wow. And she still continued uh, participating in anti-abortion rallies until her death in uh, 2017. Wow. 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 <laughs> like, I almost don't know what to say to that. It's almost like the, the sort of final example of the complexity of this issue is the person at the center of it shifting like that. There are lots of figures like that. Just recently in the New York Times on May 30th, Rob Shank, who was um, a prominent member of Operation Rescue and an evangelical minister, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times arguing that overturning Roe would be not pro-life and that he had been wrong mm. about his earlier views. So um, these kinds of conversion stories are, are not that uncommon and they do sort of, I think, drive home how complicated the issue is. Mary Ziegler teaches law at Florida State University. Her most recent book is Beyond Abortion, Roe v. Wade and the Fight for Privacy. As Mary mentioned just there, challenges to the Roe v. Wade ruling started almost immediately. But so too did Miss Magazine's defense of it. Here's Kathy Spiller again. In fact, in 1973, shortly after um, the Roe versus Wade decision, Ms. Magazine ran a full-page photograph of a woman who, on a hotel room floor, had bled out from a self-induced um, abortion and was found by the police. And it was actually a photograph taken by the police as part of their investigation. And they ran this very graphic photo of a woman who had died because she had sought an illegal, uh, an illegal abortion, a self-induced abortion, with the headline, Never Again. And I think that caught the, the spirit of that moment when Roe versus Wade was decided and when women all across the country now had access to safe abortion care. In 2006, Ms. Magazine published an updated version of its We Had an Abortion petition that included the signatures of some 5,000 women. And in the wake of the controversial laws in states like Alabama and Missouri, women had taken to social media using hashtags like You Know Me to share their own experiences with abortion. We ended our conversation with Kathy by asking why it's still so important for so many women to put a personal face on such a charged issue. I think the most important reasons, reason is that uh, people understand how 
common a medical procedure this is today and how you know someone who's had an abortion. It's, it's about still, I think, about one in three women um, will have an abortion sometime in their lifetime. And the more that people understand that this is a very common medical procedure, a safe procedure, I think is very critically important. And the other thing that women are saying is as they are signing these petitions and posting on Facebook and Instagram is that we're not going to go back. Women are simply not going to go back. They're not going to endanger their lives uh, again as women did commonly before 1973 and I've never seen such activism um, across the country among women of all ages, women who are in their 70s and 80s and who remember what it was like uh, when abortion was illegal and inaccessible, and young women uh, and pre-teenagers who understand the importance of having control over your body. That's an intergenerational fight that is ongoing and with great energy and purpose and determination, and women simply are not going to go back. That's Kathy Spiller. She's the executive editor of Ms. Magazine and the executive director of the Feminist Majority Foundation. 